0: OF HUMAN BONDAGE BY W. SOMERSET Maugham, CHAPTER 106, SEGMENT 1 Philip avoided the places he had known in happier times. The little gatherings at the tavern in Beak Street were broken up. Macallister, having let down his friends, no longer went there, and Hayward was at the Cape. Only Lawson remained, and Philip, feeling that now the painter and he had nothing in common, did not wish to see him. BUT ONE SATURDAY AFTERNOON, AFTER DINNER, HAVING CHANGED HIS CLOTHES, AND HE WALKED DOWN REGENT STREET TO GO TO THE FREE LIBRARY IN ST. MARTIN'S LANE, MEANING TO SPEND THE AFTERNOON THERE, AND SUDDENLY FOUND HIMSELF FACE TO FACE WITH HIM. HIS FIRST INSTINCT WAS TO PASS ON WITHOUT A WORD, BUT LAWSON DID NOT GIVE HIM THE OPPORTUNITY. WHERE ON EARTH HAVE YOU BEEN ALL THIS TIME? HE CRIED. I, SAID PHILIP. "'I wrote you and asked you to come to the studio for Urbino, "'and you never even answered. "'I didn't get your letter. "'No, I know. "'I went to the hospital to ask for you, "'and I saw my letter in the rack. "'Have you chucked the medical?' "'Philip hesitated for a moment. "'He was ashamed to tell the truth, "'but the shame he felt angered him, "'and he forced himself to speak. "'He could not help reddening. "'Yes, I lost the little money I had. "'I couldn't afford to go on with it.' "'I say I'm awfully sorry. What are you doing?' "'I'm a shop-walker.' The words choked Philip, but he was determined not to shirk the truth. He kept his eyes on Lawson, and he saw his embarrassment. Philip smiled ravagely. "'If you went into Lynn and Sedley, "'and made your way into the maid-robes department, "'you would see me in the frock-coat, "'walking about with the degage air, "'and directing ladies who want to buy petticoats or stockings.' FIRST TO THE RIGHT, MADAM, AND SECOND ON THE LEFT. Lawson, seeing that Philip was making a jest of it, laughed awkwardly. He did not know what to say. The picture that Philip called up horrified him, but he was afraid to show his sympathy. "'There is a bit of a change for you,' he said. His words seemed absurd to him, and immediately he wished he had not said them. Philip flushed darkly. "'A bit,' he said. "'By the way, I owe you five bob.' HE PUT HIS HAND IN HIS POCKET AND PULLED OUT SOME SILVER. OH, IT DOESN'T MATTER. I'VE FORGOTTEN ALL ABOUT IT. GO ON, TAKE IT. LAWSON RECEIVED THE MONEY SILENTLY. THEY STOOD IN THE MIDDLE OF THE PAVEMENT, AND PEOPLE JOSTLED THEM AS THEY PASSED. THERE WAS A SARDONIC TWINKLE IN PHILIP'S EYES, WHICH MADE THE PAINTER INTENSELY UNCOMFORTABLE, AND HE COULD NOT TELL THAT PHILIP'S HEART WAS HEAVY WITH DESPAIR. LAWSON WANTED DREADFULLY TO DO SOMETHING, BUT HE DID NOT KNOW WHAT TO DO. "'I say, won't you come to the studio and have a talk?' "'No,' said Philip. "'Why not? There's nothing to talk about.' He saw the pain come into Lawson's eyes. He could not help it. He was sorry, but he had to think of himself. He could not bear the thought of discussing his situation. He could endure it only by determining resolutely not to think about it. He was afraid of his weakness if once he began to open his heart. Moreover, he took irresistible dislikes to the places where he had been miserable. He remembered the humiliation he had endured when he had waited in that studio, ravenous with hunger, for Lawson to offer him a meal, and the last occasion when he had taken the last five shillings off him. He hated the sight of Lawson because he recalled those days of utter abasement. "'Then look here. Come and dine with me to-night. Choose your own evening.' "'Philip was touched with the painter's kindness. "'All sorts of people were strangely kind to him,' he thought. "'It's awfully good of you, old man, but I'd rather not.' "'He held out his hand. "'Good-bye.' "'Lawson, troubled by a behavior which seemed inexplicable, "'took his hand, and Philip quickly limped away. "'His heart was heavy, and, as was usual with him, "'he began to reproach himself for what he had done. "'He did not know what madness of pride "'had made him refuse the offered friendship.' but he heard someone running behind him and presently Lawson's voice calling him. He stopped, and suddenly the feeling of hostility got the better of him. He presented to Lawson a cold, set face. "'What is it?' "'I suppose you heard about Hayward, didn't you?' "'I know he went to the Cape.' "'He died, you know, soon after landing.' For a moment Philip did not answer. He could hardly believe his ears. "'How?' he asked. "'Oh,' "'Enteric. Hard luck, wasn't it? I thought you mightn't know. Gave me a bit of a turn when I heard it.' Lawson nodded quickly and walked away. Philip felt a shiver pass through his heart. He had never before lost a friend of his own age, for the death of Cronshaw, a man so much older than himself, had seemed to come in the normal course of things. The news gave him a peculiar shock. It reminded him of his own mortality, for, like everyone else, Philip—' knowing perfectly that all men must die, had no intimate feeling that the same must apply to himself. And Hayward's death, he thought he had long ceased to have any warm feeling for him, affected him deeply. He remembered on a sudden all of the good talks they had had, and it pained him to think that they would never talk with one another again. He remembered their first meeting and the pleasant months they had spent together in Heidelberg. "'Philip's heart sank as he thought of the lost years. "'He walked on mechanically, not noticing where he went, "'and realized suddenly, with a movement of irritation, "'that instead of turning down the Haymarket, "'he had sauntered along Shaftesbury Avenue. "'It bored him to retrace his steps, "'and besides, with that news he did not want to read, "'he wanted to sit alone and think. "'He made up his mind to go to the British Museum.' Solitude was now his only luxury. Since he had been at Linz, he had often gone there and sat in front of the groups from the Parthenon, and, not deliberately thinking, had allowed their divine masses to rest his troubled soul. But this afternoon they had nothing to say to him, and after a few minutes, impatiently, he wandered out of the room. There were too many people, provincials with foolish faces, foreigners poring over guide-books, their hideousness besmirched the everlasting masterpieces. Their restlessness troubled the gods' immortal repose. He went into another room, and here there was hardly anyone. Philip sat down, wearily. His nerves were on edge. He could not get the people out of his mind. Sometimes, at lens they affected him in the same way, and he looked at them, file past him with horror." They were so ugly, and there was such meanness in their faces. It was terrifying. Their features were distorted with paltry desires, and you felt they were strange to any ideas of beauty. They had furtive eyes and weak chins. There was no wickedness in them, but only pettiness and vulgarity. Their humor was of a low facetiousness. Sometimes he found himself looking at them to see what animal they resembled. He tried not to, for it quickly became an obsession, and he saw in them all the sheep, or the horse, or the fox, or the goat. Human beings filled him with disgust. But presently the influence of the place descended upon him. He felt quieter. He began to look absently at the tombstones with which the room was lined. They were the work of Athenian stonemasons of the fourth and fifth centuries before Christ, and they were very simple, work of no great talent, but with the exquisite spirit of Athens upon them. Time had mellowed the marble to the color of honey, so that unconsciously one thought of the bees of Hymettus and softened their outlines. Some represented a nude figure seated on a bench, some the departure of the dead from those who loved them, and some the dead clasping hands with the one who remained behind. On all was the tragic word farewell. That and nothing more. Their simplicity was infinitely touching. Friend parted from friend, the son from his mother, and the restraint made the survivor's grief more poignant. It was so long, long ago, and century upon century had passed over that unhappiness. For two thousand years those who wept had been dust, as those they wept for. Yet the woe was alive still, and it filled Philip's heart so that he felt compassion spring up in it, and he said, Poor things! Poor things! End of Segment 1 Chapter 106 Segment 2 And it came to him that the gaping sightseers, and the fat strangers with their guide-books, and all those mean common people who throng the shop with their trivial desires and vulgar cares were mortal and must die they too loved and must part from those they loved the son from his mother the wife from her husband and perhaps it was more tragic because their lives were ugly and sordid and they knew nothing that gave beauty to the world "'There was one stone which was very beautiful, a bas relief of two young men holding each other's hand, and the reticence of line, the simplicity, made one like to think that the sculptor here had been touched with a genuine emotion. It was an exquisite memorial to that than which the world offers but one thing more precious to a friendship, and as Philip looked at it he felt the tears come to his eyes.' he thought of Hayward, and his eager admiration for him when they first met, and how disillusion had come, and then indifference, till nothing held them together but habit and old memories. It was one of the queer things of life that you saw a person every day for months, and were so intimate with them, that you could not imagine existence without him. Then separation came, and everything went on in the same way, and the companion who had seemed essential proved unnecessary." Your life proceeded, and you did not even miss him. Philip thought of those early days in Heidelberg when Hayward, capable of great things, had been full of enthusiasm for the future, and now, little by little, achieving nothing, he had resigned himself to failure. Now he was dead. His death had been as futile as his life. He died ingloriously of a stupid disease, failing once more, even at the end to accomplish anything, it was just the same now as if he had never lived. Philip asked himself desperately, "What was the use of living at all? It all seemed inane. It was the same with Cronshaw. It was quite unimportant that he had lived. He was dead and forgotten his books of po- his book of poems sold and the remainder by second-hand booksellers. His life seemed to have served nothing except to give a pushing journalist occasion to write an article in a review, and Philip cried out in his soul, What is the use of it? The effort was so incommensurate with the result. The bright hopes of youth had to be paid for at such a bitter price of disillusionment. Pain and disease and unhappiness weighed down the scale so heavily. What did it all mean? He thought of his own life. The high hopes with which he had entered upon it, the limitations which his body forced upon him, his friendlessness, and the lack of affection which had surrounded his youth. He did not know what he had ever done, he did not know that he had ever done anything but what seemed best to do, and what a cropper he had come! Other men, with no more advantages than he, succeeded, and others again, with many more failed. It seemed pure chance. The rain fell alike upon the just and upon the unjust, and for nothing was there a why and a wherefore. Thinking of Cronshaw, Philip remembered the Persian rug which he had given him, telling him that it offered an answer to his question upon the meaning of life, and suddenly the answer occurred to him. He chuckled. Now that he had it, it was like one of the puzzles which you worry over until you are shown the solution, and then cannot imagine how it could have ever escaped you. The answer was obvious. Life had no meaning. On the earth, satellite of a star speeding through space, living things had arisen under the influence of conditions which were part of the planet's history. And as there had been a beginning of life upon it, so— Under the influence of other conditions, there would be an end. Man, no more significant than other forms of life, had come not as the climax of creation, but as a physical reaction to the environment. Philip remembered the story of the eastern king, who, desiring to know the history of man, was brought by a sage five hundred volumes. Busy with affairs of state, he bade him go and condense it. In twenty years the sage returned, and his history now was in no more than fifty volumes, but the king, too old then to read so many ponderous tomes, bade him go and shorten it once more. Twenty years passed again, and the sage, old and grey, brought a single book in which the knowledge the king had sought— BUT THE KING LAY ON HIS deathbed, AND HE HAD HAD NO TIME TO READ EVEN THAT, AND THEN THE SAGE GAVE HIM THE HISTORY OF MAN IN A SINGLE LINE. IT WAS THIS. HE WAS BORN, HE SUFFERED, AND HE DIED. THERE WAS NO MEANING IN LIFE, AND MAN HAD BY LIVING SERVED NO END. IT WAS IMMATERIAL WHETHER HE WAS BORN OR NOT BORN, WHETHER HE LIVED OR CEASED TO LIVE. LIFE WAS INSIGNIFICANT, AND DEATH WITHOUT CONSEQUENCE. PHILIP EXULTED. AS HE HAD EXULTED IN HIS BOYHOOD WHEN THE WEIGHT OF A BELIEF IN GOD WAS LIFTED FROM HIS SHOULDERS, IT SEEMED TO HIM THAT THE LAST BURDEN OF RESPONSIBILITY WAS TAKEN FROM HIM, AND FOR THE FIRST TIME HE WAS UTTERLY FREE. HIS INSIGNIFICANCE WAS TURNED TO POWER, AND HE FELT HIMSELF SUDDENLY EQUAL WITH THE CRUEL FATE WHICH HAD SEEMED TO PERSECUTE HIM, FOR, IF LIFE WAS MEANINGLESS, THE WORLD WAS ROBBED OF ITS CRUELTY. WHAT HE DID OR LEFT UNDONE DID NOT MATTER. FAILURE WAS UNIMPORTANT, AND SUCCESS AMOUNTED TO NOTHING. HE WAS THE MOST INCONSIDERATE CREATURE IN THAT SWARMING MASS OF MANKIND WHICH FOR A BRIEF SPACE OCCUPIED THE SURFACE OF THE EARTH, AND HE WAS ALMIGHTY BECAUSE HE HAD wrenched FROM CHAOS THE SECRET OF ITS NOTHINGNESS." Thoughts came tumbling over one another in Philip's eager fancy, and he took long breaths of joyous satisfaction. He felt inclined to leap and sing. He had not been so happy for months. Oh, life! he cried in his heart. Oh, life! where is thy sting? For the same uprush of fancy which had shown him with all the force of mathematical demonstration that life had no meaning, brought with it another idea— And that was why Cronshaw, he imagined, had given him the Persian rug. As the weaver elaborated his pattern, for no end but the pleasure of his aesthetic sense, so might a man live his life, or if one was forced to believe that his actions were outside his choosing, so might a man look at his life that it made a pattern." There was as little need to do this as there was use. It was merely something he did for his own pleasure, out of the manifold events of his life, his deeds, his feelings, his thoughts. He might make a design, regular, elaborate, complicated, or beautiful, and, though it might be no more than an illusion that he had the power of selection, though it might be no more than a fantastic leisure domain in which appearances were interwoven with moonbeams, that moonbeams that did not matter. It seemed, and so to him it was. It was the vast warp of life, a river arising from no spring and flowing endlessly to no sea. With the background to his fancies that were no meaning and that nothing was important, a man might get a personal satisfaction in selecting the various strands that worked out the pattern. There was one pattern, the most obvious perfect and beautiful, in which a man was born, grew to manhood, married, produced children, toiled for his bread, and died. But there were others, intricate and wonderful, in which happiness did not enter, and in which success was not attempted, and in them might be discovered a more troubling grace. Some lives, and Hayward's was among them, the blind indifference of chance cut off while the design was still imperfect and then the solace was comfortable that it did not matter. Other lives, such as Cronshaw's, offered a pattern which was difficult to follow. The point of view had to be shifted, and old standards had to be altered before one could understand that such a life was its own justification philip thought that in throwing over the desire for happiness he was casting aside the last of his illusions his life had seemed horrible when it was measured by its happiness but now he seemed to gather strength as he realized that it might be measured by something else happiness mattered as little as pain they came in both of them as all the other details of his life came in, to the elaboration of the design. He seemed for an instant to stand above the accidents of his existence, and he felt that they could not affect him again as they had done before. Whatever happened to him now would be one more motive to add to the complexity of the pattern, and when the end approached he would rejoice in its completion. It would be a work of art, and it would be none the less beautiful because he alone knew of its existence." and with his death it would at once cease to be. Philip was happy. End of chapter 106